As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. MotoGP's longest ever season is about to begin, and if you've missed it over the 137 days since Valencia 2022, the good news is you've got 42 races to enjoy over the next 248 days. This is the Race MotoGP podcast, and I'm Matt Beer, and you you might be wondering, regular listeners, when Toby Moody's going to be back, and the answer is actually right now Toby is, is with me, but he's here to tell you about something a little bit different and really quite awesome that we've got lined up for you for the rest of the season. So... Rather than doing the week-by-week episodes of this podcast, Toby has got something special planned for some of our non-race weeks. So, Toby, do you want to tell the listeners what you've got lined up for 2023 on the Race MotoGP podcast? Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Yes, we thought with the team that we would do something a little bit different and and kind of have a MotoGP Extra program uh, podcast. So I will chat to some people in the paddock on a one-on-one basis uh whether or not it be tom jojic or some engineers or team principals or ex-riders or even current riders to have an in-depth chat kind of similar to what we did here at the race with myself and tom jojic over the winter months december january or so but expand that circle a little bit further uh, up and down the pit lane and into the paddock a bit the, the thing that I'm quite excited about, I really enjoyed the Tom Jojic episodes. I really, really enjoyed the Livio Suppo interview that you did. Was that last summer or, or no, summer before, possibly before he came back with with Suzuki? And we were actually a little bit late starting recording this segment because we spent about 10 minutes reminiscing about the late 2000s first. Because, of course, we first worked together when uh, I was at Autosport and I just got into MotoGP as a fan in 2006. And then we got told we were covering MotoGP on the Autosport website from 2007. So, it was lucky I'd figure out what a high side and a low side was just in time because I was suddenly working every MotoGP weekend on the news desk. And Toby, you were, you were our paddock guy then. So most of my MotoGP education was from frantic phone calls from you from the paddock, just telling, take, taking us through storylines like the wall between the, uh, Lorenzo and uh, Rossi in the Yamaha garage. And most of my Marco Simoncelli memories from 2011 are you phoning me from the paddock just telling me what had gone down now and what the other riders were saying about him. So... I'm really excited for particularly the retro element of some of these interviews that you're going to be doing in this series. Well, so am I. So am I. Yes, I remember that uh, that first race that we did for Autosport.com slash MotoGP as it was in those days, and that was a that was a big step for a 
an English-speaking website like that to, to do two and four wheels. You know, it was always four wheels, four wheels, four wheels. And then it did two. And and there were some journalists in the paddock who didn't like that. Well, my publication comes out on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday next week. How very <laughs> dare you put this stuff on the internet? And I just said, this internet thing, it might just catch on. Which, of course, riled them <laughs> even more. Um, but, yeah, and I said, your publication's got a website. You need to use it. It's all about the now. Indeed. And at the race, we, we've always been digital only. So I, I don't even know what a piece of paper looks like anymore. It's, <laughs> it's all, all the website, YouTube and, and podcast. So really good to have you back after after your winter focusing on other things. Really good to be sharing this podcast with you from, from now on, which is a little bit humbling as you are a bit of a broadcast legend in, in MotoGP. And uh I've I've been a website editor who fills in on podcast clashes, so this this is a, feels like I'm stepping into quite big shoes taking on the the day to day podcast. But yeah, really looking forward to finding out who you've got lined up. Toby's first episodes will be after the opening doubleheader, so he'll be uh, back in your ears in April. And uh, yeah, thanks for popping in, Toby. Not at all, not at all. Uh, thank you so much for your work as well. And I don't know about being a legend. I just said what I saw. <laughs> <laughs> I just said what I saw, honestly. It just came out that way. <laughs> anyway, I'll be listening to you guys. Put it that way. Mega, we'll definitely be listening to your episodes as well. Speak to you soon, Toby. And let's get on with the 2023 season. Thank you very much. So we've got a special guest for the rest of this week's episode as well. We're joined by MotoGP broadcaster Amy Reynolds, along with the regular lineup of Valentin Hurunchi and Simon Patterson. We do a fairly regular check-in on Simon's van-based locations as he travels to races, and he's parked up at a disused service station in Spain. So there's a bit of there's the sound of dereliction in the background uh, to go along with uh, the sounds of mine, Val, and Amy's houses. Amy, thank you very much for joining us uh, for this podcast. Pleasure. Um, it's an absolute pleasure pleasure to have you along. Likewise. Uh, we're going to let you have first go at answering the first of our predictions questions, uh, as as you're new here. So yeah. first one's an easy one. This, this whole episode is going to be us predicting the 2023 MotoGP season, so you can look back at the end of it and go how painfully wrong you were, which normally happens every time we do a predictions episode, as anyone who remembers our predictions the 2023 grid one we'll, we'll be very aware um so the first question is a really easy one who will be this year's world champion amy you go first oh i'm not gonna put myself on the line with this one peco bagnaya for me simon peco bagnaya val i know you've said one name but i have to do a prelude to this i do no, i do no, not no, like no, no, okay, no, you know what no. fabio Quartararo. oh okay okay I was going to try and if, if all of you had gone for Bagnaia, I was just going to go Larry with Quattararo or Ennio Bastianidi and then try to frantically justify it when it when it came to me. But I think, Val, we have to start with you with your logic for Quattararo. Um, OK, well, you know what? I, Peko Bagnaia is the favourite and I think it's more likely than not that it's his title. So maybe I lied a little bit, but I don't think I genuinely do not think it will be as straightforward as the as the preseason made it look. It's it's such a long season with the with the new format. It's you know Fabio has had an off season to re- recuperate a bit and think on the bits he did wrong in trying to bring the 2022 Crown Crown over the line. I think he'll be a s- stronger, better version of himself again. Uh, I think as long as honestly, as long as Yamaha gets him anywhere within reach of those Ducatis, I think some potential Ducati infighting may help him stay there for the longer term while they optimize their new engine, while they optimize whatever new aero developments they may or may not have. It's not super encouraging that they went back to 2022 aero and settings at the end of the test and went instantly so much faster 
But it is more encouraging than if, you know, had they not done that and had he finished B19th with Morbidelli P21 in the in the timesheets. I just, last year, Pekko Bagnaia at the end of the season acknowledged that Quartaro was still a more complete rider. I don't know if he still feels that way, but bef before we see a lap turn in anger, I still feel that way. And this is still a rider's championship. Pekko's the favorite, but I, I don't think it's going to be as straightforward as preseason testing made it look, even though he is rightly everyone's favorite. Simon, you've quickly put your hand up to tell Val why he's wrong. Um, Actually, I've put my hand up to tell Val that I I think he might be a little bit right. Um, <laughs> Bagnaia is everyone's favorite because of how strong he's been from testing, how he finished last season. But it is his championship to lose, and if there's one person he can lose it to, it is Quattararo. Um, I think that everything else taken into consideration, he's the strongest rider in the grid at the minute still, even if he's not on the strongest bike in the grid. Um, and if Yamaha can pull out a little bit as the year progresses and make that bike better, the way that Ducati did last year in making Bagnaia's bike better as the season went on, then the, you know it, it isn't all lost for Quattro. There is potential there. But Amy, even with these arguments, you would still go for Bagnaia's title favourite? I would. I just think the the favour lies with Ducati in sheer numbers. But I think out of, you know, Peko, Jorge Martin, I'm going to throw him in there, Enea Bastianini, I just think Peko is the more complete rider at the moment. And I would not be surprised if we don't see Peko emulate something like he did in Moto2 in 2018. I think half of the problem with Peko at the start of last year was that whilst everybody else believed he could be world champion, I don't think Paco believed it as yet. I think now he has that first title underneath his belt, I think he's going to be a really formidable opponent. I think that 2018 Moto2 season, he only finished off the podium. What was it? Something like... It was something like only six times he finished off the podium, maybe even less than that. And I think we're basically bang on to see him do something very similar in MotoGP this season. He is, he is fast all the time. He has been fast all the time in preseason, and that's obviously 80% of the puzzle. And that's why he's everyone's favorite, because, you know, whatever condition, it sounds like he's even better in the rain now, which maybe was one Achilles heel last year. So, yeah, you're completely right. I'm I'm being a bit of a contrarian, obviously, in picking Quartararo. If you made me pick with my own money, I'm not sure. Although the odds on Quartararo are probably a bit more, <laughs> a bit more favorable in terms of the money return you can get. Uh, let's not get into weird betting stuff. Um, I just, even last year, when there was so much at stake for Ducati, they didn't, they really tried not to put their thumb on the scale. You know, they really tried not to use the might of their bikes to orchestrate results. Obviously, it helped putting the extra Desmosidicis between uh, Quartararo and Bagnaia. That helped the point swings massively. But they didn't necessarily make Bagnaia's life as easy as they could have. And that was for a first title since 2007. So if they don't do it then, I think this year, even more, they'll have a sort of free-for-all mentality. If Bastianini can do it, go for it. If Martin can do it, go for it. If VR46 bikes will no longer feel beholden to help out their fellow Valentino Rossi protege because he already has his title. So now we, you know, now it's time to get our guy the win that he really hopes for our guy being the team owner, Valentino Rossi and Lucio Salucci and all that. So 
that's that's sort of that's the counter for me. Banyaya will be massively more emboldened and more relaxed, and that's clearly really important. I mean, he was a complete mess and bag of nerves in the Valencia title decider last year. That's not happening again. He'll be fine. And that's again, that's most of the way there in terms of the puzzle. But I think that's just, I think it might be complicated because of you know, because of how Ducati plays it. I agreed completely. Like this, we talk a lot about the strength of having eight Ducatis in the grid, but there is a negative to it as well, and that is the fact that they're not big fans of public team orders, and it all turns out a bit messy. And there's more strong Ducatis this year to get in Bagnaia's way than there were last year, because people like Bezecchi is going to be expecting to be ready regular podium contender this year. Marini, I think, is going to be a regular podium contender if his preseason carries forward into races. Martin Zarco, Bastianini, all looking to win races, um, and the two Grissini bikes are also potential podium contenders on a regular basis. So that's you know one of the big one of the big hurdles that Bagnaia is going to have this season is that weekends where Ducati is really really strong, he's going to have a lot of other Ducatis there around him. Whereas on a weekend that maybe the Yamaha is working a little bit better. Quarteraro essentially has free road because there's no other Yamaha's to get in his way. Um, how that plays out will be interesting. You know, we, we touched upon it in the podcast last week a little bit about how uh, the the people that Bagnaia needs to be most afraid of right now are probably other Ducati riders as opposed to Quarteraro, even though Quarteraro is probably his biggest title contender. Um, that that's for me that's going to be one of the most interesting narratives of the first few races especially if Quadraro does start a little bit slowly the way Bagnaia did last year and you know needs a few races to get up to speed if there's other Ducatis picking points off Bagnaia every weekend plays into his hands if, if Fabio qualifies P7 in Portimao I'm going to get this episode erased from the internet <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to make a legal submission to make sure nobody hears the words I'm saying that's, we have so many things to erase if we if we try to reverse over all our errors on this podcast over the last year. <laughs> um, we have sort of swiftly moved on to potential rivals um, to our championship favourites in, in that discussion. And, you know, we discussed Banyar, we discussed Quartararo, and they are proven champions. And that, uh, Amy's point that Banyar is a very different character this year, that's a really strong... A strong one for me because I'd almost forgotten how good he was in Moto2 during the first couple of years of his MotoGP career when Jack Miller looked, to me at least, the more interesting prospect at, at Pramac. And, you know, Banyai certainly wasn't doing badly, but it wasn't until he went on that massive winning, winning run trying to chase Quartararo down in 2021. I just didn't see Banyai as a, as a world champion. And suddenly, bang, yeah, this is possible. But to me, it was obvious that he'd come into 2022 with that in his head. But like you say, he clearly didn't. There was still a point to prove to himself there. So looking at who's who else is in the mix this season, beyond Banyar, beyond Quartararo, who else do you three see potentially fighting for the title? And are these people who have got to prove it to themselves as well? Because, you, you know, you've, Amy mentioned Jorge Martin. We, I regularly end up abusing Jorge Martin on this podcast for being so frustratingly, brilliantly quick and yet throwing it down the road on his face all the time when I just want him to just finish those races, win those races that he can. So... Amy, you've got first pick again here. Who, if, if Banyai is your title favourite, who are who are his title rivals? Well, I think, like the guy said, in his head, he will feel as though the main threat is going to come from within. He's going to be keeping one eye on his teammate, Anaya Bastianini. We know those guys aren't the best of friends. They're not by any means enemies, but there's not going to be 
any love lost between them. We kind of started to see that fizzle up a bit, fizzle up a bit towards the back end of last year. I think oh, it was in one of the the MotoGP um, documentaries where um, Peko turns around to I think maybe Gigi and says, "You know, who's he? Who's he playing for? Is is he with us or is he against us?" And Ineo's always been the the stepchild almost of, of the Italians because he hasn't come up through the VR46 Academy ranks. He's not in that kind of inner circle. And he's a very different character to Jack Miller. Jack Miller was the perfect teammate for Paco. He played for the team. He rode for Paco when championship was not going to be his. And I think even before that, whereas Enea, I think, has a bit more of a DGAF attitude. He does not care about winning titles for Ducati. I think Enea is there to win titles for himself. And I think perhaps Enea will pose the biggest threat to Peko. But I also, we've actually not mentioned Aprilia's yet. You cannot overlook Alicia Spargro. But to be honest with you, I mean, he was still in it just as we got to those fireway races. And that's when it all started to unravel. They've looked strong in pre-season testing. Okay, he's coming in to this first one with a bit of a question mark over his head with the, the oppie up to have, obviously, for the arm pump um, issue. Um, but we've seen guys come in like almost a week, two weeks after having that operation and still perform well. So I don't think it's going to be hindering him for too long. Um, but we cannot overlook the Aprilias. Maverick, I, oh, there's just still a question mark over Maverick's head. He is clearly such a talented rider. It's not been easy for him over the last couple of seasons, but there is still a part of me that thinks it won't be too long before we see him throw it all together at Aprilia, especially when he's got a bit more competition with the likes of Miguel Oliveira joining now. Just like to say for the benefit of listeners who can't see this, that Amy's hand gesture at the start of that sentence just encapsulated Maverick Vinales' MotoGP career. It was a kind of raised hand of like slight frustration and exasperation that was a very neat, like one second move to, to sum up all that, lo- all that wasted potential. A hundred percent. I find, I think Maverick for me is one of the most frustrating riders because he is so talented and when he is feeling good, but genuinely feeling good, he's not just telling you, oh, I know, I feel good, I feel good. But when he's on it, he is superb and he's a great rider to watch. So he's one of the guys I'd love to see come back into form. I mean, I think the the strong thing about Alicia Spagaro is that he's learned that he's capable of winning a championship and he's taught Aprilia that they're capable of winning a championship as well. And there's a lot of psychological bonus that's going to come from that. Um, beyond that, I think that he's actually one of the people that the new format's going to suit this year because we saw, you know, last year in Argentina, less practice, uh, faster Aprilia. He was able to, you know, immediately make an impact um, whenever we lost that day and, and won his first race. I think that less practice is going to suit him, more racing is going to suit him. He's going to be strong in sprint races. He's going to be strong in the longer races. He's things look really good for him, probably even better than they did last year, especially with a stronger bike. On the Maverick side of things, 
I just can't see Maverick Vinales as a title contender because he's never been a title contender even when things were going really well because he's so up and down, he's so hit or miss. You know, that that first season at Yamaha, when it looked like he was going to run away with the championship by just cleaning up in the opening races, and then it just completely fell apart, um, is the maverick thing for me. That's the, you know, the textbook maverick for Yamaha's move. And until we see him proving to us and to himself, I think, that there's, a, you know, that there's more to it than... Yeah, I, I can't rank him as a title contender. It would be so Vinales, wouldn't it, to not put together a title bid in a really com- on a really competitive Yamaha and then actually pull off a title bid on the Prilia se- six or seven years later. Um, again, for benefit of listeners, you, you wouldn't have seen Simon's resigned, sighing facial expression while summarising Maverick Vinales. So we've got Amy's wave, Simon's resigned sigh. Val, your turn to gesticulate. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Val put really enthusiastic thumbs up because he is... That was Team Maverick. Team Maverick. Yeah, well, it's Team Maverick, which is sort of, I guess, a small running joke <laughs> here these days. But look, Maverick, everything that has been said about Maverick is completely spot on, 100%. He is maybe the easiest great rider in MotoGP to knock off out of their performance window. Like when things go bad for Maverick, they go so bad, it is impossible. It is genuinely spectacular every single time. You look at the lap chart on lap one and there he is in 28th. And you're like, there are 28 riders in this race. How is he that long? How is he that low? Um, the thing is, even Aprilia wins a title. I think Maverick Vinales is the Aprilia that wins the title. I love Aleish Spargo. Love him to bits. He's a, an absolutely great character. You know, roots for Barcelona quite enthusiastically, so nobody's perfect. But just a, this really great guy, great character, very smart, gives great quotes, thinker. I think his championship moment was last year. I think last year was a chance to Juan Mir that thing, to point score his way to like a proper title shot in the final race. And I Aprilia's late collapse robbed him of that. I I do not believe he can come that close again. Um, one thing just on the subject of who is and isn't going to win the title, um, I'm going to throw it out there that no Honda and no KTM is going to come anywhere near close to a championship this year. Second that. Yeah. I just don't think it's going to be their years, is it? Going back to quickly to the Maverick point, though, what I do think Maverick might be able to smash are the sprint races. Because I think what we've seen sometimes with Maverick is, OK, there's occasions where he comes into that late race pace and if he had just got going a bit sooner, he could have been on the podium, potentially a race win. I've got a feeling that actually with not such a long distance or length of time to have to maintain something, I actually think he could be a rider that could do really well out of the sprint races. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't look at it that way, but I, I, I kind of see what you mean. Like, there's no... He'll be able to wake up a bit sooner. I think I think that does that does make a bit of sense. And there's also always with the Maverick, there's also the question of what exact tyre rubber is on the track for the race. So if there's not going to be a full moto three moto two race before the before the main event that in theory that might help him although maverick is you know it's such a black box of performance you put stuff in then things happen in there that you have no idea what's going on and then some lap time comes out and it's either like the best thing you've ever seen or you know p28 as i said uh also worth noting that those sprint races this year will you know the bike's going to be 12 kilos lighter 
at the start of the race. He's not going to have the full fuel tank problems that he's always had because they're not going to be running a full fuel tank. 100%. Uh, because you know, on pace, like last year was not so much. I guess in the Yamaha years and a little bit in Aprilia, you could see that he sort of you could point him out as one of the guys who's actually being hurt by the sprint. But the light, the light fuel tank part is completely right. I just think, to be honest, that any if you're removing ten laps of a race, you're removing ten laps in which Vinales can have something terribly messy happen in in his performance. So, <laughs> to me, him performing better in sprints, yeah, definitely makes sense. So we're basically predicting Bagnai for the championship. And between us, we're promoting Bastianini, Quattararo, Espargaro and Vignales as well as potential title contenders. Yeah, Val, you've, you've done it now. Well, I mean, Jorge Martin, as Amy said, and I, 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 don't, I don't understand this. And I think until Jorge Martin falls off on a Sunday, we cannot do this. I'm sorry. I know the reputation. I get it. But there's also sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy at a certain point that comes in there. The man's quick as hell. If you've looked at the preseason testing at all, he is stupid fast. He no longer has an engine that he hates in that bike. The 23 engine is clearly a, like, we can't do that yet. Look, let's, I guess let's talk a month later and then I'm sitting here being stupid because he's non-scored three times, but I don't think we can do this yet. I don't think we can write off Jorge Martin. Amy. I just want to re-clarify my point. I didn't put Maverick Vinales as my title contender. I don't Val think he's quite did. there yet. Oh, okay, we're, we're right, putting, we are putting all of that, that entirely on Val. I'm just so. not up for like being this wrong this early in the season. <laughs> I, I should say I don't believe in either Aprilia, but I believe in Maverick in terms of the headline top talent more than Aleish in terms of the champ. Like Aleish probably brings you more points on average, but Maverick has the higher ceiling and ceiling is what wins you titles. So I'm covering my butt here a little bit, but also, yeah, no, Team Maverick. I believe in Maverick. Maverick's going to win it by, you know, five races in advance. There we go. Yeah, all, all I heard there was still Val saying Maverick Vinales for champion. So. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's the set now. Simon. I'm just cutting in to make my point that I make every time this conversation comes up. It's got nothing to do with Jorge Martin. Satellite bikes can't win MotoGP World Championships doesn't happen won't happen no chance nope we actually i think we end up having this conversation in the column on the website at the start of last year that if any satellite bike could win a, a championship at that point it looked like it would be jorge martin because his performance was just so good and then yeah as i've mentioned about 30 times on the podcast i then lost faith in martin as as last season went went the way it did but i would this is one of those things where there's some things on a, on a podcast or on a column where you would so love to personally be wrong and i would love to be wrong about martin Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. So, okay, we've got a pool of 
five-ish title contenders there, maybe six. I think this next list is going to get really quite big. Who else, and we're including sprints in this, who else could win a race this season? Who wants to make their prediction first? Val? Yeah, I'm going to do the usual thing so that we get it out of the way first and don't really engage with it further. Uh, Kota's on the calendar, the Saxon Ring's on the calendar, uh, a few other tracks that you might look at, like Aragon. Mark Marquez is going to get over the line in one of those races. Simon? Um, I think the only two riders on the grid that can't win a race this year are probably Augusto Fernandez and Takanakagami. I think every other rider in the grid has race-winning potential at some point with 42 races, with rain, with high temperatures, with low temperatures, with all the, you know, with brand new circuits that we've never raced at before, probably with more like logistics delays that means that you turn up on a Friday morning, on a Saturday morning and go racing that evening or whatever this year is going to bring. Um, you know, let's, let's not forget we're back to back Portimao to Argentina this week. Um, there, yeah, I, I genuinely believe that the huge amount of the grid has the potential to win. Um, maybe Morbidelli doesn't as well, actually. But eight Ducatis have the potential to win, for sure. All eight of them, even Di Gentonio. Because let's not forget, you know, he had pole position pace at Mugello last year. If everything's right for him, and it looks like things are a lot better this year for him than they were last year. He's got the potential. Alex Marquez absolutely has the potential to surprise us in a sprint race, especially in like damp conditions. Um, both VR46 Ducatis can win. Both Pramac Ducatis can win, although I think Johan Sarko's mental block against doing backflips might work against him, so he needs to fix that. Um, both factory bikes, obviously. Uh, Mark Marquez, as Val says, will absolutely win. Um it's harder for it's harder to see Ajwan Mir or Alex Rins win at Honda, but I don't think it's impossible if things go right for them. Um, who have we left out? Four KTM's, three of them can win if conditions are right. Jack Miller can absolutely win a wet sprint race. Uh, two satellite Aprilias again. Rian, Miguel Oliveira, Royal Fernandez might be a bit of a stretch, but stranger things have happened, um, especially given how good that bike is. Yeah, we have an ultra, ultra, ultra competitive grid, and I am aware that I am cheating slightly by basically listing everyone. But th- there's a huge amount of potential. I'm, tr- I'm just the point I'm trying to make is there's so much talent there, and with 42 races, there's a huge amount of opportunity as well. I was going to say, even with 42 races, I think picking 19 riders is slightly cheating. But we've had, we've had Simon picking 19, 19 and a half, given how you discussed Morbidelli. Val picking one in a very sensible conversation starter move. That leaves a huge amount of middle ground for Amy. Yeah, Amy, pick something sane in the middle. Okay, right. I'll go for, right. I'll be a bit more specific with mine. Um, Marco Bezzecchi, I've got a feeling Marco's going to do it in Mugello. There was obviously some uh, early potential there. He's already got a podium last year in Aston, I think it was. Um, so I think, and then the back end of the season, Marco was banging on the door for a couple of podiums in those final few races as well. So I just think Marco, that next step up for him is to, to bag a race win and Mugello being in that kind of first quarter of the season. Um, I think we'll definitely see a win for Marco there. And Miguel Oliveira, um, I don't think it's going to be too long before we see him win on an Aprilia. But as Simon said, it's an ultra, ultra competitive field. There are so many names that you could put up there for wins this year, as has been the case for the last couple of seasons. And now, especially when we've got 
machinery, which is okay, other than Honda right now, but you've got exceptionally talented riders like Mark Marquez who can ride around those problems, especially now he's fit. Um, and the only reservation I have with KTM and Gas Gas is I just think testing really hasn't been that conclusive as to where they're at. Perhaps you guys have got more insights, but from what I've been seeing, Brad Binder is always a guy you can count on. Um, and Paul Espargo looks so he's kind of slipped on a pair of comfy shoes going back. But I don't know, do we know where KTM and Gas Gas are going into this season? Do they know? We never know at this point. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, you're right. It's, I think that's very much mine and Simon's assessment too. And my KTM assessment was I looked at Brad Binder's sprint simulation on the final day of testing, went, that's crap, that's really bad. And that sort of formed my whole view of of KTM season, which is it's never smart because remember when they just rocked up in Qatar and Brad Binder was second at a track where they've traditionally been awful? KTM follows no rules or logic. KTM is Vinales in manufacturer form, but not as good at testing, <laughs> yeah. basically, in terms of not knowing what you're gonna what you're gonna get. But um Amy, you suggested a Bezeki win at Mugello, which is which is a mega idea. And I'm taking this off on a slight tangent, but Obviously, since since Valentino Rossi retired, MotoGP has had a degree of popularity problem in in some areas. It's you know the audience that was there for Rossi has has dwindled. Is VR forty six as a team succeeding with someone like Bezeki? Is that going to make much of a difference to to help rebuild things, or have we kind of lost the Rog- the Rossi magic with him? Yeah, actually not being on on the grid himself. What do you think? I think Valentino Rossi is irreplaceable. There's nobody that's going to be able to come in and be quite like Rossi for all of the reasons we have spoken over time and time again. Rossi was just Rossi. Not only was he massively talented on the bike, he was a huge character. Um, And even when, you know, he did play that villain at times, people still loved him. And I think as well, there was just so many different parts of Valentino that made Valentino Valentino, like the celebrations, the amount of times you see riders try and emulate those celebrations and go, oh, wasn't quite it, was it? That was it's a little cringy, bit awkward. Yeah. Little bit awkward. Um, but no, he just got it right so many times. But if anybody could out of those VR46 Academy riders, I'd say Marco is is that guy. He is a little bit more charismatic um, than than the others. And he is obviously exceptionally talented. I mean, what he did on, God, the, the Mahindra in Moto3 and well, obviously Paco did as well. But he's got the talent. There's definitely some kookiness around Marco Bezzecchi, even just the hair and the earring. Maybe Marco could be that guy. We just don't get to hear from him all that often. I think, I think perhaps we just need to get him, give him a mic and... He did, he's not one of those riders I see like that gets interviewed very much by the English press. So yeah. perhaps we just need to see more of Marco. The the thing for me about Bez that makes him stand out uh, among the other VR46 riders and among the rest of the grid in particular, actually, um, it's exactly what you're saying, Amy. He, he is more charismatic, but he does the things that a young Valentino did, but he doesn't feel like he's doing them to try and replicate Valentino. You know, we see a lot of these other Valentino-esque celebrations and they feel like someone's trying to copy what he did. It, it feels like plagiarism. Whereas with Bez, it doesn't feel that way. It just feels really natural because that's the kid he is. 
Um, and that will stand him in really good stead. And it should stand MotoGP in good stead going forwards as well, actually. But when you speak celebrations, it's not like that's not a not a rider initiative usually, is it? Like Fabio Quartararo didn't design the CGI devil in Blender or whatever in in twenty twenty one. Uh, but just you know, the wider point. Uh, the thing about Valentino Rossi is I'm not sure if we plug in a young Valentino Rossi somehow grow him in a tube in a vat whatever plug him into this year's MotoGP grid, that it makes a massive difference. And that's not to downplay the importance of Valentino Rossi as a, as a personality for growing MotoGP. It's just things have changed. The world has moved on. I think many of the, like the Rossi ride or die diehards, I won't say grew, grew out of it, but you know, waves come and go. Um, I don't think there's a, again, I don't think there's a huge personality problem. I I, I always say that. And maybe... That's just maybe because modern MotoGP riders are more like me in that they've already grown up in this sort of slightly media sanitized sort of world. And it's it's easier for me to maybe even relate to them than some of the some of the guys of old. But I don't think there's a like I, I just don't think there's a personality problem. I think it's elsewhere. I think when that elsewhere catches up, we'll realize there's not a personality problem. I think, for instance, you know, F1's doing quite well. I don't think Fabio Quartararo is less interesting than the key players in Formula One. Don't don't think that for a second. I think he'd fit in seamlessly, absolutely there. I can Im- imagine him as an F1 driver right now, except for the whole driving part. So, yeah, I don't think is that. But you know, Marco Bezzecchi is a is a fun guy. Also, Luca Marini is a fun guy. Just, yeah, I like the VR for. I like the whole Ducati lineup. I don't know. I like everyone. I've I've been in a car with Fabio Quattararo on a mountain road, and I can confirm that he thinks he's a Formula One driver. <laughs> he's taking me, I should say, for a lap around uh, of the quarter-mile circuit. Where, yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I remember saying I won't be repeating that experience. <laughs> that ended in a facial expression as well. I've taken us off onto a, a bit of a Rossi tangent there, which uh, I've stopped before we just, for the hell of it, went back to Sepang 2015 or anything. But when we were listing listing the winners and we got up to 19 and a half winners, that left a conspicuous kind of two and a half. So we should make a prediction for who's going to have a bad season as well, which is not... not a, we do more out of sadness than anything else. Simon, your your hand has, has shot straight up. So this list will be shorter than your last one. <laughs> who, who is going to have a shocker? Um, well, Valentino Rossi is definitely not going to win a MotoGP race this season. So there is that. <laughs> um, no, he'll, I, uh, he'll do it by proxy. This yeah, year, me, well, there is that. There is that. Yeah. Um, no, I, I jumped straight in because I've already touched upon it. You know, I can't see a Honda or a KTM title challenge coming this year. I, I think neither manufacturer are ready for that. Um, but more specifically with Honda, I think they're going to have like, we're, we're going to, right about this season in terms of worst ever Honda season for like the third year out of the last four, it feels. Um, I can't see things improving dramatically this year. They seem like a manufacturer that is completely and utterly lost at the minute. They're clutching at straws, bringing in other manufacturers to build chassis parts. They're, you know, they're outsourcing work that a manufacturer like Honda should never have to outsource. And I can't help and think that the fundamental problem with all of it is that they just won't get behind the whole aero thing. Um, you know, we're still looking at a bike that has like it has wings that look like the first generation of MotoGP wings. 
And that's just we're we're so far beyond that right now. And whether it's, you know, conservative thinking within the engineering department, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's just not wanting to spend the money, whether it's not having the know-how internally, it doesn't matter. They have to fix that that arrow problem or they're completely lost. Um, and the problem is right now they get to update their arrow once after we, we you know, after we turn wheels and anger and put them out, they get one more chance this season. And I don't think that's going to be enough to to do what needs to be done because essentially what needs to be done is a fundamentally completely different bike that works in a different way. Um, and, and they need to realize that, um, the, the best descriptor of this that we've had all season came from Paulus Bagaro, at uh, the Sepang test when he talked about how, when you see MotoGP bikes, now they go into the corner with two wheels in the ground using the rear brake to turn. And the Honda is still going into the corner the way that MotoGP bikes were 15 years ago, with the back wheels bouncing up and down in the air, and everything's about the front, you know. And that's all because of aero. That change has become has come because of the way that aero affects the bike. Um, you know, look at Aprilia putting wings on the swinging arm just to try and increase that effect. And yeah, for me, their season's right off before it even starts. Yeah, Mark Marquez will win a few races, but you won't fight for a title. We should say, I mean, the because the, I don't think we, when the previous podcast recording happened, I don't think that had come out yet, but there's been a, a report in German media in, in Speed Week that Honda has commissioned a full-on Calyx chassis rather than a, a Calyx swing arm. So a full frame from the uh, preeminent Moto2 manufacturer and obviously on the heels of the Calyx swing arm being quite popular with its riders. Which is, which is what Simon is referencing in terms of the unprecedented level of outsourcing and one that must be quite hard to take for, for the people working back at the, the Honda factories. And, and just to add a little bit more context to that, you know, we're talking about a manufacturer that in like 2017, 2018, everyone was buzzing about the fact that they'd built a carbon fiber swing arm that was actually usable in races. And they were working on, you know, carbon stiffening their chassis and stuff like that. And now they're getting a Moto2 manufacturer to build aluminium parts for them. It's a huge, huge, huge drop in, in form and in expectation. For, for what it's worth, I don't think this will be a, like, worst Honda season ever contender because I think they've shorn up the bottom. I think Alex Rins and Joan are too good. They are too good to let the bottom fall out the way it maybe did last year and in 21 and in 20 a bit. Um... Yeah, so that's I, I don't think a title challenges on the cards, but I, I really like the acquisitions on the on the rider side of things, which are of course fortuitous because that would not have happened if Suzuki hadn't bailed. Yeah, I think that this was my when you were saying, Simon, I think this is gonna be another worst ever season for Honda, my thought was even if Honda does much the same again in terms of struggling, it's put Rins and Mir in. That is gonna that is gonna make something at least a little better, even if it's just it'll have three bikes scoring mediocrely rather than one scoring mediocrely and three scoring really badly but amy where do you think where do you think honda ends up with mir and mir and rinsen are they going to be able to make enough difference in this situation i think as we saw with mark there is a limitation um it isn't the bike that he was able to use that talent much like fabio quartaro is doing now with the m1 he's able to kind of ride around the limitations of of that package. Um, I think Honda have just got to a point where there are too many limitations. And, you know, they've done an amazing job at, well, perhaps not an amazing job, but it was 
very lucky that Mir and Rins became available when they did and that will elevate their results overall without a doubt as we've already seen in pre-season testing it leaves Takaki Nakagami exceptionally vulnerable he was only given a one-year deal anyway and perhaps that was more down to the fact that Ayagura didn't want to step up but perhaps Ayagura didn't want to step up because he goes well why would I be making my debut my MotoGP debut on that bike um, so I'll sit back and wait for a, another season or so and see how they get with de- get on with development. So I think it just leaves Taka very vulnerable. And um, he had, what, 2020, he had some really promising results. That was perhaps the year that if he was ever going to get that first MotoGP podium, it was going to come there. And he hasn't been really em- able to emulate that ever since. So I just think Taka is perhaps on for... Uh, a difficult one. I'm just, I'm just, I'm laughing imagining the situation that Ugura has been waiting for the Calyx MotoGP chassis all along, and that's that's why he deferred his debut, which is of course not not the case. Um, I I hate to say it because I I like Takanakagami. He's a great character to work with, and he's he's a smart guy to talk to. But this is his final season in MotoGP. I I just I don't see a way for this year to turn around for him. And to be honest, I I I genuinely wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't score a point this year or if he, he scores like single digit points wow because you know he's like two and a half seconds off the pace intestine it's it's been big margins oh, over like longer runs and race pace and stuff he's not been there Val shaking his head as a- he got better he got like I, I he got a little not a little he got considerably better it's just again I, I I know the point you're getting at the you know so many good likes I get it but He's not. He's not going to be like. I don't think this is going to be a Tom Luthy zero point campaign. Uh, uh, the thing to remember about sprint races as well is they do present more of an opportunity to score points, but they only score points to ninth, uh, and that you know, that is really going to limit the chances. I actually think we're we're not going to see more people scoring points because of sprint races. Yeah, if only top nine scoring and you're qualifying twenty second, it's yeah, that that race isn't really doing you any any favors. The, the other struggler I, I do think we should definitely talk about before moving on to, to happier topics, although, although the next topic on the list is sprint races, so maybe, maybe it won't be, who knows. Um, the, the other struggler we should talk about is Franco Morbidelli, and still, we're predicting champions and winners earlier on in this podcast, and we're not picking the guy on the second factory, Yamaha. Um, does anybody here have any hope? Okay, Amy's put her hands straight up. I don't know if this is going to be hopeful about Morbidelli or, or or damning, but go for it, Amy. I think Franco Morbidelli for the last year has been one of the biggest enigmas of MotoGP because it's not a handful of times that I've heard people ask, what happened to Franco Morbidelli? It's almost like week in, week out. He was runner-up. In 2020, he finished runner-up. He looked so competitive. And then he came into the factory team 2021. Yes, he wasn't on equal machinery, but we still thought, you know, he is going to keep Fabio on his toes. It was a bit of an injury-plagued season. And then get to last season, he was given finally given equal machinery. And it just didn't happen. But for no real apparent reason, there was nothing obvious that you would have thought, well, that's what it is. That's what's, you know, giving him trouble. There was really no signs of hope. 
and testing again like he just thought perhaps he just needs a winter off collect himself together come back in on this one he's obviously under a bit of pressure this year because he's only got one more year left on his contracts but again he's another one that wins testing you've just looked at where he's finished on the timesheets and thought oh god is this going to be your your it's i mean you definitely have got to think that he's not going to be re-signed by yamaha I mean, the the thing about Franco's performance is that none, like you exactly like you said, I mean, none of the reasons for it make any sense. Um, we've heard him say that the bike doesn't, you know, the the change in the bike has been so significant that it doesn't suit his style anymore. But he's had a year to change his style, and we know that he's been able to adapt his style in the past because he's rode multiple bikes in MotoGP. We, you know, he insists that there's no lingering effects to that that really bad knee injury. Um, from from you know that that Psalm set out for so long, uh, he claims that he's not doing anything different in terms of his preparation or mentally. Um, we've heard stories that you know he went to the VR forty six riders went to Portimao before the season started, before testing started, and he was quicker than Bagnaia on a, on a superbike. None of these reasons make sense. Um, it is you know you hit the nail on the head. It's a complete enigma because there's just there's no understanding it and. It almost feels now like the best thing that could happen to him is that Yamaha do sack him and that he goes somewhere else for next year because that's the only way I can see now that, you know, that that seems to be like the kick that he might need to get his mojo back because switching teams, getting a factory promotion didn't do it. A bike that is very different and, and fixes a lot of the weaknesses of the old bike didn't do it at Yamaha. What else is there left to to try? And he's lucky. He's very fortunate in that um, he will get another chance in MotoGP. He, he's not someone that's going to go from a factory Yamaha to a World Superbike ride um, because VR46 won't allow that to happen. You know, the, there were some comments re- recently from Ucho Salucci about how 60% of the work of the VR46 Academy right now is trying to fix Franco. So they're not going to let him fall out of the championship. But, but where does he go? Like, He's out of sync with most of the big contracts. So, Sai, where does he go? Uh, Bezek, uh, Martin replaces him at Factory Yamaha. Bezeki repla- replaces Martin at Pramac and he goes to VR46 Ducati. That, that's the only real option I see right now. He needs an established rider to replace him so that the dominant effect creates room at VR46 through it. But, like, if, if Yamaha goes, okay, Jorge Martin doesn't actually want to ride our bike, so we have to bring in, say, Toprak as Gatlioglu. Then suddenly, oops, Morbidelli doesn't really have anywhere to go, does he? So but then does no, do we say that no Moto2 riders are going to get promoted next year? Uh, well, yeah, it's not straight to a factory team. You think like Alonso Lopez or Pedro Costa being poached or something? I don't... It's worked. I, it's hard. It's also because... We're a bit, you know, contract off sequence, so it's just it's the one ride. Would Yamaha take? At this, like, they'll have to do something. I think that's the problem because, you know, looking at the at the test times, Morbidelli, I don't think has a year to save his ride. I think he has like two races. If he shows up in Portimao and on Friday, Saturday, he looks the same as he did in the test. That's game over. We're done. We're starting to have to look at alternative options right away because they cannot do another like another season of this and then be thinking about what they do next. If they know they're in for another season of that, 
they have to find a way to get out of it for 2024, as as mean and ruthless as that sounds. But, you know, we're, we're in the business of professional sports. Franco Morelli scored, what, 17% of Fabio Cortara's points last year? Can't do that. Doesn't happen. Um, but yeah, I don't, the Moto2 point is interesting. I just don't, I don't know if there's anybody who's like, you would slot in right away without into a factory Yamaha seat next to monster Fabio Quartararo without it being somebody who's already attached to KTM, like Pedro Acosta. But then does someone coming up from Moto2 fill a spot somewhere else that, that creates a domino that means ah, who now need who who now actually needs Morbidelli? That's I think that's the that's how this could go wrong for Morbidelli. He's got that nice VR46 backing safety net. But if there just aren't enough Ducatis for whatever reason, then that's that safety net's not much immediate use. But but if there is a VR46 seat, they will take him before they'll take Celestino Vietti or, or anyone else in the pipeline. He will be the first choice if there's a free seat, I think. I wonder if that also complicates it for Yamaha a little bit. Because if you... Like they have every ground to replace Franco already, unfortunately. Like this all sounds so harsh. And I hate being so harsh, but we're in a numbers business. We all see the things that we're seeing. And it it doesn't do you, the audience, any favors if we pre- pretend like the things that are happening aren't happening. Franco Morbidelli's pace right now does not warrant even a second thought of a contract extension. But Yamaha has a relationship with Valentino Rossi that is worth keeping pristine especially if they want to get his satellite squad to make it their satellite squad so that's also a bit of a complication i think politically i've just realized that there's some weird like alternate timeline where factory yamaha sack franco morbidelli vr46 signs him and then vr46 becomes the satellite yamaha team and franco finds himself back restarted hear that believe it or not summer is just around the corner Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. So our last topic is the big flashpoints of the season, the biggest potential rails. And I'm going to throw one in straight away, which is sprint races, because regular listeners will have heard Simon and Val bang on about sprint races quite a lot last season. And it's very it's very easy working in MotoGP, working in motorsport to see it from a kind of overworked insider point of view and go, oh, 42 races in, in a season, doubling the number of race starts in the really long championship and not see it from a fan's point of view of, yay, more MotoGP races. And I've, I've heard quite a lot of both sides over the last few months. You know, from my point of view, I'm, I'm someone who puts a, a website news desk rotor together and look at the number of hours I've got to cover with 42 races and 21 Grand Prix, but I'm not the target audience for doing this. So uh, you know, we've heard we've had enough from Val and Simon on sprint races. Amy, what what are your thoughts on on sprint races as a concept? And that and you know there is controversy to a degree over them. Um, so my personal opinion has always been fairly open to them. At the end of the day, they are being put on for the fans. 
Um, so in terms of fans attending, there's going to be something worth watching on every single day. If you're there on Friday, it's the fight for who goes into Q2, who goes into Q1. Saturday is going to be a mega day because you've got qualifying, you've still got a free practice session and you've got the sprint race. And then Sunday is your main day, your race day. So for fans in attendance, obviously it's an added bonus. And then people watching back home, the only thing that I wonder is sometimes when you've got it's almost the same argument when you you see how long the seasons are getting sometimes more races doesn't inevitably equal more audience you get people kind of like dropping off because how many weekends can you commit to sit down and watch absolutely everything Um, and I think maybe sprint races could potentially see people just dipping in and out a bit more Um, you obviously always have your hardcore fans which will be there to watch every single thing that goes off the line and then in terms of like one of the the main goals of sprint races were to bring in new audiences I've always struggled with that concept and on how that is going to work I don't know how putting on an extra race is going to bring in new people to watch but I'm open at this point I I kind of I'm ready to see how they're going to the work and and enjoy them and um, from a more of a, a spectator's kind of point of view yeah matt, matt you point uh, painted me as a like a big sprint race detractor just because i've cracked like seven thousand jokes about them but i should say amy's viewpoint is my viewpoint and has always been yeah you, you are, you've been less grumpy than simon <laughs> just generally or about sprint races on, okay. on topics uh, yeah. on, on life yeah uh yeah i like honestly it, it even, in a way, it does make our job easier because more things will happen. And it's very important that it mix, like it makes Friday a lot more worth following because usually I just, I loathe Friday practice so much. Like there's not a lot of things in the world I hate more than that, which maybe says something about my priorities, something unsettling, but. There's only so many times you can say, how was your Friday? Yeah. Abs- absolutely. And there's only so many times you're gonna hear a worthwhile answer to that. And it's like one in a, in a thousand. Um, but yeah, it's just, I, I think Amy's right that we should be open and shouldn't necessarily be negative about it. Just like our initial issue and still remains was the way they were introduced without, it seems a very, I, I don't want to say smart process, but without a very long process about it. And that kind of thing should take a while because this is a world championship with years and years and years of legacy and formats. And also... I, I don't know how this adds new fans because it is just more of the same thing. Like if the 24 hours of Le Mans holds 11 hours of Le Mans before the 24 hours of Le Mans, is that going to make more people watch the 24 hours of Le Mans? No. I think maybe the word you're looking for to describe the uh, introduction of sprint rest process is democratic, um, which it wasn't particularly. But uh, the biggest controversy about sprint races, I think, is still to come because we still haven't had a resolution to the Raiders pay issue, um, which is going to be interesting this weekend um, because, well, essentially because half of them had signed contracts when sprint races were announced without anyone knowing anything about it. And those contracts say you will be paid X amount of euros for winning a race. And they didn't specify what a race is. Um, That still hasn't been resolved because a lot of the teams are trying to pay half bonuses for sprint races, things like that. Riders are saying, you know, we have the same amount of danger, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, It will be interesting to see how that plays out because that's going to be something that might not be, like I would, won't be something that's resolved in time for the first race. That's something that could be resolved 
in 12 months time, whenever we see teams going to court against their former manufacturers to claim the full amount of bonus that they're owed, because, you know, who knows? Um, that that for me is going to be the biggest controversy of sprint races over the, the next few months. It's, it's definitely something we'll hear about, I think, more when riders are straining under the extra mileage that they've had to endure, maybe on round 12 or 13, when they're like, oh, we've already done 37 races this season, and it's still not over, and it will never end, and we're earning the same amount of money, so that's not great. But yeah, like, it looks like the, the question is there whether they'll be worn down enough and forgetful enough to forget about it. And I, I, I guess I would not bet on that, yeah. Riders never forget about money. Yeah, yeah. In pure spectacle terms, I, I thought the idea of sprint races in Formula 1 was completely pointless and would solve nothing and just couldn't get it. And then when they started being introduced, every Sunday race after a Saturday race was, if anything, maybe coincidentally, really good. Just a little bit more mixed up, a little something happened in every Sunday race that had a sprint race beforehand. And you couldn't pull a logical X happened because of X, therefore sprints are good theme to it beyond maybe just a little bit of disruption in the routines teams were used to was just enough to shake things up. And I think this this is what I'm really intrigued by for for MotoGP. The, the the reason that I'm weary of making too many F1 comparisons to the sprint races, though, is that an F1 race is, what, two and a half, three hours long? Oh, I hope not. Most, most of them don't drag on that much these days, at least. Our, our races are already sprint races. True. Very true. You know, that's the that's the, the reason I'm sort of worried to make those comparisons. Yeah, yeah you're right. Fair point. What, what else is going to be argued about this season? What, what, obviously, Simon is straight in with a, with a source of argument. What, what would you predict could be the other big controversies of the 2023 season? There is potential for a huge controversy this year. There is, I think, a legitimate potential for a world championship to be decided because riders have been disqualified for exceeding front tire pressures. If the new front tire pressure monitoring system comes in as strongly as it says it's going to, and if it's upheld the way that it is, and if riders feel to make that pressure because realistically, because of you know factors outside of their own control, I am not for one second suggesting that anyone is going to try and cheat the tire pressure. But with the current front Michelin tire that we have, depending on your race, you have to basically pick one direction or another at the start of the race. And if things go your way, everything's fine. And if things don't go your way, you're disqualified or you crash out. Um, it's going to be a huge gamble at the start of every race. And it will come into play during the season. People will get disqualified. And there's a realistic potential that some of those people will be title contenders who lose significant amount of points. And come the end of the year, that's a factor. So you think it's going to be upheld past the decision points because it's not going to be firm for the first couple of races, is it? It's just... It doesn't come into play for the first three races. But I, I think it's going to be very difficult for them not to bring it in longer term considering it's been framed as a safety issue it's going to be very very hard for the manufacturers to say we're not willing to implement what what is believed by the tire manufacturer to be a safety concern and yeah once it's in play it's going to shake things up because obviously rider pushback is also safety based but uh, the tire manufacturer is the one that has the the data and the i guess i don't want to say legal power but the legal power of argument. I don't. It's yeah. You're right. It's a. I haven't really even thought about it that way. I just thought if the writers are really against it, it's not going to happen. But yeah, I think the argument from Michelin will be that if the risk is 
falling off in a low side because your tire's overheating or your tire exploding at 225 miles an hour. It's going to be a fairly easy argument for them to make. Is is aero going to be an actual row or controversy this season, or is it just something that is now here to stay in quite an ugly form and we just all get used to it now? It, it It's not going to be a row per se, I think. We're going to see people continue to push the boat with it, and there might be pushback from other manufacturers as they do, which is something that we saw before um, Qatar 2021 when Ducati bought that rear scoop onto the bike that the other side was illegal and there was a bit of to and fro and a, a Stuart's inquiry and an appeal and et cetera, et cetera. Um, we might see things like that as as there's you know more and more innovation brought um, as Aprilia did over the course of testing, but I don't think there's going to be I can't see it being a, a sort of a huge controversial row because pretty much everyone apart from Honda are playing the same game and Honda are probably the manufacturer least likely to uh, appeal someone else's arrow just because of their the, the nature of the company. Amy, I think we've all reacted to this, but what's your what's your take on the Yamaha triangle on the rear on the rear on the rear seat? I I don't have a strong opinion about it. I mean You're the only one. Really? Why is it I don't understand why it's provoked so much strong opinion. It's like we're in an age of like aero really being taken to its absolute limits and all stretches of the imagination. And we've been in that era now, what, since 20, was it 2015, the first winglets appeared? So I've, I've just kind of like, I'm with the, I'm in the flow of aero, whatever new, weird, wonderful um, winglets, side pods, diffusers, whatever you want to call them, they want to come up with and throw them on the bike. Let's see, let's see what they look like. And uh, it's not, I, I'm not someone that has a huge, strongly opinion on them. I don't get offended by them, but I also, if they work, they work. It's probably a healthy way of looking at it compared to our, oh, it's just like, it ruined my lunch. I can't eat anymore. <laughs> Makes me vomit. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, it, it didn't ruin Fabio's lunch. He's getting your table to eat it all. <laughs> it's difficult to eat from behind you though, isn't it? That's, that's not, that's not, if, it, if they're going to build an aero, dining table on the on the on the bike put it where you can reach plus 50 downforce from the aero dining table thanks for giving them ideas <laughs> so any other shouts for a controversy this season or are we going to stick with oh no val's got i was going to say we can move on to like being happy that there's like 19 race winners and seven title contenders but val you've got one more one more controversy no i just i just think the ducati policy is going to come up again in some way of how they and I, you know, I've mentioned this before earlier in the podcast, but I think that's the one that makes really a lot of sense. Ducati was already very hands off about orchestrating the championship. How that's going to change now that they already have one recent riders' title and in the bag, and what what other riders are going to feel about it? Whether there's going to be any tension between Na and Peko, or Peko and Jorge, or Na and Jorge, or the other 50,000 combinations, I think that's might come up, especially if one of them runs the other off. Like, you know, last year, because of how hard the Ducati start of the season was, it didn't really matter that uh, Peko Bagnai eliminated Jorge Martin in Qatar. Didn't really seem to bother either of them that much because they had bigger problems to worry about. But if they're both title contenders and something like that happens, ooh. Yeah, Ducati having... Well, I was going to say a third of the grid. It's more than that percentage-wise now with Suzuki gone. Tugati having a third of the grid hasn't hasn't kicked off into being as big a row as it could have been yet. So maybe that is to come. Although at the same time, who else's fault is it? You know, is it, you can't blame Ducati for taking that opportunity. 
Go for it, Amy. Mine's going to be Mark Marquez and Honda because I feel as if we get to the midpoint of the season, Mark hasn't had those guaranteed wins as in Austin, uh, Saxon Ring. If they're not nailed and he's not got some other feedback or signs that he is able to still win and still be able to win a championship on a Honda, which we've all just identified that this year, none of us think he's going to be able to win a championship on the Honda this year. I don't think that romance romance is going to be lasting much longer. I am predicting uh, a few toys to be thrown out of the pram between Mark and Honda. I already think he has reached that point where he's not afraid to let his voice be heard and his um, disappointment and dissatisfaction um, to them now. He's obviously got to that point in his career and his his relationship with Honda where he can be absolutely open and honest with them and say, like, this isn't good enough. Yeah. If nothing really indicates to him this year that he's going to be able to win a championship again on Honda, I think there's going to be a big fallout happen there. I think this is this is exactly the conversation. Like even every time Mark emphasizes how much faith he still has in Honda, but this is exactly the conversation he wanted by just with every proclamation, a little bit opening the door, a little bit to the idea that he might see his future somewhere else, whether it be through media appearances at the end of last year or through the documentary, which dedicates like a whole episode to really bringing that subtext into major main text. Amy, do you see this going as far as Marquez and Honda splitting early? You know, he's, he's got two more years on the contract, but if, if, like you say, he doesn't get that Austin win, doesn't isn't competitive at the Saxon ring, is, is it that level of crisis territory that he's out of the door at the end of the year? I'm going to say yes. It's going to cost him a lot of money to break that contract. But I think if it means him not having to wait another couple of years to get a bike he can win another championship on, Mark isn't going to stay there out of loyalty to Honda. I think he thinks he's done that already by sticking with them and going through what he went through to get back so he was competitive on a bike. I think he's now at a point where he's gone guys I've been loyal to you I've put the work in if you can't do the same back to me I'm out I don't think he cares anymore about money at all um, we know rumours of what this contract was worth and if those rumours are true he's pocketed nearly a nine figure sum in the last three seasons he doesn't care about money anymore. He's set for life. He just wants to win things, especially after everything that he's been through. Um, he wants to win. He wants to prove that he's still the best in the world. And if that doesn't happen at Honda, he's out. And if that has to happen mid-contract, he doesn't care. He'll buy his way out. He'll find something else. And yeah. Yeah, at this point, it's just a question of alternatives, really. So that's maybe also part of his recent softening of rhetoric may be related to the fact that he's realized sort of the market maybe isn't as strong as he would have thought but it's you know it's mark market's always going to be there somebody's going to go for it and there's and mark is going to believe that he just needs any bike that has shown anything and it'll be enough 
and he, he's on the clock. He knows he's on the clock. Again, that's another major topic of the documentary. It's made it clear over and over again how aware he is that he's on the clock. And he's always told us, every single one of us, not personally, I mean, in media, in media, in media sessions, that uh, finishing P5, P6, P7 doesn't do it. I think that's a suitably seismic uh, place to end our, our, our round of predictions. I like how, Amy, you started your debut by saying, I'm going to play it safe prediction-wise, Banyai for the champion, and then went, yeah, Marquez is going to walk out on Honda. That's <laughs> that's that's, def- that's, that's, a, that's a surefire bet. But, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's been absolutely superb having you here. We really appreciate the time this morning. Thank you, guys. Uh, Simon and Vell, thank you in a more kind of routine every week sort of way as well. Thank you, listeners. You take us for granted. Yeah, that sounded like it, didn't it? Yeah. You've not got novelty value. Um, thank you, listeners. Uh, I, I appreciate you more than Val and Simon. Maybe that's what I'm getting down the rabbit hole now. Thank you for your company this morning. Thank you in advance for joining us next week when we'll have an actual race, not just one race, two races to talk about, the first sprint and the first round of the 2023 MotoGP season. We'll see you back here then. The Athletic.